Welcome to Tell Me More, a podcast series featuring distinguished visitors to Tufts University who share their ideas, discuss their work, and shed light on important topics of the day. Space wasn't always on Dr. Ellen Ochoa's radar. Her path zigzagged its way from a love of music in high school to a degree in physics and a doctorate in electrical engineering to developing optical systems for image processing to leading a NASA research team in high-performance computing and, in 1990, to her selection for NASA's astronaut program. In 1993, she served on a nine-day mission aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery, becoming the first Hispanic-American woman to go to space. After three more flights and nearly 1,000 hours in space, Ochoa became director of the Johnson Space Center at NASA in 2013. So how did this flute player make her way to outer space? In a conversation with Professor Karen Panetta of the School of Engineering, Ochoa discusses her love of music, she even played her flute in space, and how she navigated her path to NASA. She also gives advice to students and describes her own role models while sharing her perspectives on the STEM disciplines, that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Ochoa visited Tufts University in April to deliver the Women in STEM lecture, and she will receive an honorary Doctor of Engineering degree from the university this year. Let's listen in. We've got an exciting interview with uh, Dr. Ellen Ochoa today. She's a veteran astronaut, inventor, and past director of the Johnson Space Center. Ellen, welcome. Thank you. Today we're gonna talk about your perspectives on the past, present, and future of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, otherwise known as the STEM disciplines. So Ellen, today's young people are supposed to start seriously thinking about their education and career aspirations at the ripe old age of 15. Now you've had a stellar career in a range of topics from everything from image processing and high performance computing. Was your path to becoming an astronaut always part of your life plan or did you zigzag and find your own way? Oh, it was definitely a zigzag. <laughs> no, a lot of times people ask me, well, you know, during the Apollo program, was this something that you decided to do? And I have to kind of remind folks that, of course, there were no women astronauts at that time, very few who worked at NASA at all. And uh, so n nobody would ever ask a girl, you know, would you like to grow up to be an astronaut? And it certainly wasn't something I, I thought of at all. And uh, in high school, I hardly, unfortunately, hardly took any science. Uh, just didn't think I was interested in it. I was interested in music, and so you know, my big thing was band, marching band and concert band, and um, I was in the California All-State Honor Band, things like that. But I did take a lot of math, and I really liked math. So when I went off to college, and I went to our local college, San Diego State University, um, I thought, well, I might major in music. I was also thinking about business. Um, and I kind of decided against those, and then I tried a variety of other things. And it wasn't really till sort of the end of my second year. I was finishing up the calculus series, which I just decided to take to finish up. And, um, you know, really talked to the other students about, what, you know, we'll why are you in this class? You know, what are you majoring in? And of course, most of the st students in there were either doing engineering or physics or chemistry. So I, I went off and talked to a couple different professors. I didn't really know anything about those fields. And um, this will probably sound familiar to you, but I, I got a, a, a range of responses, shall we say. Uh, so I went to talk to a professor in the EE department. 
And uh, he was uh, not at all what you would call encouraging. You know, he said, well, you know, we had a woman come through here once, but, you know, it's a really hard program. And, you know, I just don't know that you'd be really be interested in, in doing it. And then I went to talk to a professor in the physics department who uh, I got quite a different uh, response from him. And first of all, he said, well, yeah, I'd like to tell you about physics. And let, tell me how much math you've had. Um, and I, so I said, well, I'm finishing up the calculus series right now. And he said, well, that's great, because if, if you start into the physics series, you'll already know the language of physics, uh, and you'll be able to really focus on the concepts. And most of the other people in the class will be doing that concurrently, trying to learn you know, both the language and the concepts. And so he said, you know, I think you'll do really well. And then he also uh, explained to me some of the things that people do when they have physics degrees, different sort of areas that you can go into. And that was really important, too, because, again, I didn't know anything about physics, had never talked to a physicist. So I couldn't really picture in my mind what, what it would mean. So, uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that you at one point went back to that electrical engineer <laughs> professor and said, uh, look where I am now, dude. So. Well, I never did. And, and I always tried to think about, like, if I had really, really wanted to do double E, I hope that wouldn't have discouraged me. And, and I think in my life when I really wanted to do something, I went after it. But I was really just on a, you know, a, and fishing expedition, mm -hmm. right? And um, and so what those professors said really made a difference to me. So I selected physics. Awesome. Well, and one of the things we talk about is how important role models are for mm -hmm. inspiring young people to pursue yeah. the STEM disciplines, especially for women in underrepresented groups of individuals. So you talked about your physics professor, but were there yeah. other role models in your life, even if they weren't STEM professionals, that gave you that determination so that when somebody said no, <laughs> you took it more as a challenge and said, well, just watch me now, I'm going to do it anyway? Well, sure. I would say the person that had the biggest influence on my life was my mom, and she was just very interested in learning in general. I mean, I, 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 I'm sure she had this idea that all of us getting a good education, I have four brothers and sisters, um, was important for our futures. But she also just really loved learning, and I think that was something that we all picked up from her. So, um, so after I selected physics, um, I ended up deciding to go to graduate school. Well, actually, while I was a physics undergrad is when NASA selected the first class of astronauts that was going to train specifically for this new vehicle they were developing called the Space Shuttle. And of course, that was the first class that included women and the first class that included minority astronauts. So that was, that was a big deal. But I had just gotten into physics, so I still you know, really wasn't thinking anything about space. Then I went off to Stanford for graduate school, and the year I was getting my master's is when the shuttle flew for the first time. Mm -hmm. So again, really different kind of spacecraft, and it was going to be used for a lot of what it was going to be used for was research, science and engineering research. A couple years later, uh, Sally Ride flew, first American woman in space, and uh, she had been a physics major like I had. She had gone to Stanford. I was currently at Stanford. so. Clearly, uh, there were six women in that class, and I think they all had an impression on me. But because I could see some of these things I had that were similar to, to Sally Wright and her background, I mean, that was really the first inkling in my brain of, well, wow, somebody, you know, you can get a PhD, you can, you know, be headed on a research career, and you could actually do research in space, you know, if you got selected. 
a few weeks ago, as part of our Women in Space series here at Tufts University, we had Debbie Martinez, the Execution Manager of Research Activities at NASA Langley Research Center, speak. Yes, yeah, I know and Debbie. She, she's a powerful role model herself, mm-hmm. yet she talked about how she always considered you <laughs> as a role model for her and how your mentorship has inspired her through her own career aspirations. So how important do you think it is to have role models throughout our careers and not just when we're trying to pick that initial you know, career as we enter school. Oh, well, I think it's important. And it was certainly important for me. And then I have also tried to play that role in the in the various different positions I had at NASA. But, you know, from the, when I first joined NASA, which was before I was selected as an astronaut, and I, I joined as a, as a research engineer, um, you know, my supervisor really pushed me and gave me some positions with higher visibility and more responsibility, things I, were, I wasn't even thinking about yet mm-hmm. um, at that time. And then uh, after I was selected as an astronaut, uh, you know, there were a variety of people in the astronaut office who, um, you know, reached out. And, and if I had a particular, particular role on a mission, was trying to find out more about how I could do it better, I mean, I would go around and talk to other folks, and they were very willing to help. And then, you know, even when I was deputy center director at Johnson Space Center, uh, the person I worked for, the center director at that time, Mike Coates, was just really good about making sure that I saw all aspects of the job so that someday when he retired, I would at least be a strong candidate. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't be the one that selected his successor, but he would certainly make recommendations and comments about people. Mm -hmm. And um, so he was very intentional about you know, there wasn't some part of the job that I hadn't seen or hadn't done. One of the, the questions that uh, people might ask is, okay, how, how do I go about finding a mentor? <laughs> do you just walk up and say, hey, be my mentor? How do you, how do you what advice would you have for somebody who knows they want a mentor? Right. And, and maybe their own manager is not that person. Right. What, would you, what would you suggest? A few different things. Um, first of all, it's great if you work for an organization that really has a formal mentoring program. And we did do that at Johnson Space Center. And so a mentor could say, here's the areas or here's the questions I have that I really like to explore. And it, it was a one-year commitment, right? So, so it kind of had a beginning, it had an end. And I think that helps when you're looking for mentors because often um, people who are higher up, they're sort of talking to a variety of, of people and, and trying to fit it in with their day job. Uh, but if, if you don't have a formal program, I think it's, it's important to think through you can actually have three or four mentors at one time, right? Because you're exploring different aspects of how you might be growing and getting new skills. Mm -hmm. And so you may want somebody who's like in your own department, for example, because they can help you understand what's important for success in your own department. Mm-hmm. And But that person, you know, maybe that person's a man and you're also looking for a woman to help give you a mm-hmm. perspective and you might find that. And I think if you go up and you say, you know, I'm really interested in, in developing my skills. These are some of the things I might be interested in further on in my career. I'd be interested in your advice. Okay. I think people are almost always willing to give advice. And then, <laughs> you know, if that seems to go well, you can say, could we have, you know, more of an ongoing relationship? But you, you it's helpful if you sort of de- define parameters, okay. like, can I meet you once a month for coffee? Uh, you know, something where the the person that you are talking to can can easily say, yeah, that's something I can fit in my schedule and I'm interested in, in helping this that's person really out. That's really great advice.
So you have two boys, and one of the things that I'm wondering is, you know, when they were growing up with mom who's a pilot, mom who's an astronaut, <laughs> was that no big deal to them because they were so used to it? Or, or um, you know, th- and did they think you were cool? Or is it like every other parent when we're never cool? Right. Well, <laughs> it, it is hard when you're a parent to be cool in any sense. Um, I would say it was a little less unusual where we grew up because, of course, we grew up around Johnson Space Center, where my kids grew up, I mean. And so in their elementary school, they often had another kid in their class whose parent was an astronaut, too. So it wasn't like they were the only, the only ones in the school uh, just because of where we lived. But I think as they actually um, branched out and maybe they'd go to a summer camp somewhere where it wasn't in Houston or, uh, you know, where they went off to work someplace, uh, you know, in their first jobs. And so it wasn't right around the Space Center then they had a little more fun saying, <laughs> you know, what their mom did because it, you know, it was much. Uh, it was really unusual then, and and they liked to. And how how of, often did you get to call home from space to talk to your kids? So, um, you know, uh, by by the time of my final mission, um, first of all, we did have the ability to call home from. We docked to the International Space Station, and they had an IP phone, mm-hmm. so you could call. You could actually call a phone number. Mm-hmm which I hadn't been able to do on any of my earlier flights. Now, my kids were really little. One was three and a half, one turned two while I was in orbit. So just to give you some perspective, we got the three-and-a-half-year-old on the phone. And, um, of course, he had gone down to Florida to, to watch the launch, and he got to go in a, in a NASA plane. And it was probably the first plane ride he actually remembers. So I'm talking to him from the International Space Station, and I said, Wilson, you know, what would you think of the launch? And he goes, Mommy, I got to ride in an airplane. <laughs> I said, well, that's really exciting. And, um, and then what would you think of the launch? And he said, Mom, it was a blue and white airplane. <laughs> and, and so, you know, kids, it's really all about, about them. them. There you go. Very good. Really, it's, that's, that's amazing. Um, now, you've logged over 1,000 hours on space missions. Can you tell us about any time you had to deal with a challenge that arose while you were in space that required you to solve an issue that you didn't anticipate? Because one of the things that I'm always trying to promote to my students is engineering is not just expecting everything to go the right way. And (laughs) And in fact, it almost never never does. does. So can you tell us about some of that? Well, I will say, first of all, nothing big went wrong on any of my missions. So... um, so we were fortunate in that way, and we, we were able to achieve all the objectives on all of my missions. But the vast majority of our training, and we usually train for about a year ahead of a launch, is based on things not going right. So you spend just a little bit of time sort of going through the procedures as they're written, and then you spend most of the rest of the training period trying to figure out uh, how you will work around problems that you have. And so it, it really is that whole mindset because once you are in space, you know, you need to figure out how to how to make it work no, no matter what goes wrong. And, of course, you have a team on the ground that's helping you, uh, but you really need to know the systems well. And so there were lots of little issues that happened, um, but we were well-equipped either on board ourselves or working with the ground to actually work through them. That's a really incredible lesson for all engineers to learn. That, oh, yeah. You, know, you, just you always have to have a plan B and then a plan C. C. <laughs> the yeah. EFG, yes. Right. So now NASA is planning on going back to the moon. Oftentimes we hear people say that space exploration is too expensive and taxpayer dollars would be better spent on other things. Can you talk about some of your favorite technology transfer innovations that have been born out of NASA to research? 
Sure. I mean, there's there's such a wide variety. And in fact, NASA um, kind of puts together uh, a book, which is also available online, called Spinoffs, literally every year of things that have grown out of uh, NASA work that are now available and being used in other industries. Um, I will say, just kind of going back to the original part of the question is, um, you know, all of NASA, which is all of human spaceflight, planetary spaceflight, earth science, aeronautics research, is about one half of 1% of the federal budget. Mm -hmm. So when people always say, all this money, I just have to put it a little bit in perspective <laughs> compared to the, to the entire budget. And for that, you get, you know, new scientific knowledge, you get new technologies, and uh, you get um, leadership in just the whole area of space, mm -hmm. which is important globally and has allowed us to really bring along a large global collaboration in terms of the International Space Station. And of course, you get economic benefits because of these technology transfers to many different industries. And it really serves as inspiration. I mean, there are many people that have gone into science and engineering because of what NASA does. And there are even people who have achieved great things in, in completely different fields just from the inspiration they got mm -hmm. from what NASA does. A lot of um, ones that have been transferred have been in the medical area, mm -hmm. for example. So um, because NASA has always had this um, need to have medical care in a remote hazardous environment, mm -hmm. and we need you know small equipment, we need very lightweight equipment, we may need to talk to doctors, you know, over a satellite link. So a lot of telemedicine mm -hmm. and, and devices have right. come out of what NASA well, yeah, challenged. What, do you think NASA will be using any augmented reality or virtual reality? Or did you use any virtual reality um, when you were there? They use it for training. For training? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. You know, with yeah. the onset of artificial initially, intelligence. Initially for yeah. uh, spacewalk training, mm -hmm. um, definitely have used it. And um, even now, um, they're using it to... Um, sort of have people evaluate what different kinds of habitats, either in space or on a place like the moon or Mars, mm -hmm. you know, how you would actually design that and how you would um, operate in that without needing to build more expensive mock-ups, at least initially. So yes, absolutely. And more and more, there's applications for that. So can you talk about you, um, how going back to the moon fits into the grand scheme of future space exploration or even Earth observing systems? Yeah, well, we want to understand more about what we can learn. Um, and of course, generally, we send sort of probes out in, in advance of humans. But when you look at even the, the amazing work that rovers have done on Mars, um, if you, uh, I remember at the time that um, Spirit or Opportunity had been there eight years, and they said, well, it's traveled as far as we did with a lunar rover in three days. Mm -hmm. So um, if you actually can get people out there and give them some mobility, I think you know the science return's just gonna be tremendous. And it's also about learning how to live in, a, in another environment. I don't know exactly when that's gonna become an imperative, mm -hmm. but I think we need to start learning about it now. So it's, it's science, but it's other reasons as well. And um, Mars is, is really sort of that horizon goal, not that we maybe will want to stop with Mars, mm -hmm. but it's certainly, um, that place that we feel we'll learn a lot about the history of Earth if we understand more about Mars. However, it's, you know, eight months or nine months away, and, and a mission is probably something like three years. The, the moon is two or three days away. Mm -hmm. So th there's a lot that we can learn. 
uh, there's a lot that we can test out on the moon. And so I'm excited. I hope we uh, can carry out the plans, or I hope NASA can. You know, I'm retired from NASA now, but I, I still use we because mm-hmm. I was there for 30 years, and it's, it's a big part of me. We want to thank you, Ellen, for being with us here at Tufts University, where you will be receiving an honorary doctorate from the School of Engineering at the 2019 commencement, which we're all very excited to. And I'm very honored to have been selected for that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And to be the first to hear about new episodes, please follow Tufts University on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd also welcome your thoughts on this series. You can reach us at tellmemore at tufts.edu. That's T-U-F-T-S dot E-D-U. Tell Me More is produced by Katie McLeod Strollo, Anna Miller, Dave Nusher, and Stefan Hacker. This episode was edited by Eugene Kong. Web production and editing support provided by Taylor McNeil. Special thanks to Lynn Powers and the School of Engineering Graduate Programs and the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Our theme music is sourced from DeWolf Music. And my name is Patrick Collins. Until next time, be well. <laughs>